There is something that is very, very powerful about just coming back to yourself. This is the Brilliance Leadership Learning Podcast, sharing thought-provoking content and discussions to enhance your leadership development journey. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of new episodes. Here are your hosts from the digital learning team at Crotonville, GE's Global Learning Institute. Welcome to a new episode of Brilliance Leadership Learning. Today we have Debbie Jeremiah, who manages GE Crotonville's Global Mindful Leaders Program, and she's also studied neuroleadership. So Debbie, what I want to first ask you is to introduce the topic of mindfulness to our listeners. What is mindfulness and also what is brain awareness? And are they the same as meditation? Yeah, okay, absolutely. And, you know, it's a really important topic at the moment because mindfulness is just everywhere. It's all across the media. We've got uh, professional sports people doing mindfulness. We've got uh, professionals doing mindfulness. We've got politicians. We've got celebrities. Anyone who's anyone is doing mindfulness at the moment. So what is it? Well, um, you know, there isn't really kind of one answer to that. So I'll give you the answer that I think. Uh, whoever you listen to might give you a slightly different answer um, because we all have a slightly different view of it. But at a really high level, mindfulness is actually, it's a very natural state. It's a state that many of us are in throughout the day. We just don't realise it. So what is it? Well, it's simply about paying attention at times when you normally wouldn't. All right. So that that's all it is. Um, an example of that would be, uh, you know, you are commuting, you're driving to work in your car. Normally, chances are your mind is thinking about your emails, about what you're going to do in the day, what, you know, conversations you're going to have. You're not really paying attention, you're not really seeing a lot of what's going around you. So mindfulness is really just kind of <laughs> pulling it all back coming back to centre and being present and aware of what's happening to you and your body, what's happening in your head, what are the, th what are the thoughts that are coming into your head and also what's happening around you as well. And so, you know, if, for example, you were driving a supercar to work, so if you <laughs> happen to have a Ferrari or a Lamborghini and you were driving that car to work, chances are you would be in a mindful state because you would be very aware of what was happening around you. You'd be aware of the sounds of the engine, you know, the admiring uh, glances of the people you're passing by, the, <laughs> the sensation of the, you know, this V8, this V12 engine that you're driving. You know, you'd be fully immersed in that experience. Chances are you are not going to be thinking about your emails. So that's really the difference between a mindful state and a mindless state. And there's many, many times in the day when when we might be in both uh, or, or either. So we might be in a mindless state when we are making a cup of tea for ourselves, uh, making a coffee for ourselves, and we are so lost in our thoughts that we end up making the wrong drink for ourselves. You know, we meant to make tea and we made coffee because we were on autopilot. We were lost in thoughts. Uh, so mindfulness is really just bringing attention to yourself when you wouldn't normally do it. So you might not normally be paying attention to yourself when you're making a cup of tea. You might not normally be paying attention to yourself when you're going for a lunchtime walk and all mindfulness is is just stopping and saying well hang on a minute let me just 
stop and check in with myself. What's going on in my body? Am I aware of myself from the neck down? What's going on in my head? What thoughts am I having? Am I having emotions? Am I having feelings? What's happening around me? You know, have I noticed the sky? Have I noticed the green shoots of spring? Have I noticed, uh, you know, the beautiful view in front of me? Have I noticed my colleague who's sitting next to me, who's, you know, been pulling a face for the last half an hour or something? <laughs> so it's it's just literally about being aware. Now, um, you know, you asked the question about what's the difference between that and, and meditation? And sometimes mindfulness and meditation, those terms are used interchangeably. But really, meditation is about making it a formal practice. All right. So meditation is typically when we decide to stop and really pay attention to our thoughts. Maybe we use a, a guided meditation app. Maybe we go to a class. Maybe we just sit down, find a quiet space, just kind of um, start to pay attention to what's going on in our head and and typically with meditation if we're using some kind of guided meditation we'll be encouraged to focus on a particular object normally that object of focus is our breath because that's something that we've all got to hand really easily you know it's always there the breath is always there and it's also something that just kind of gives us an indication of our state of mind um, so typically with meditation, we pay attention to this object, whether it's our breath or it might even be something like just looking at a tree, looking at something on your desk, a pebble or something. Um, typically the mind wanders. We try and focus it on this object, but the mind has a tendency to wander all over the place. As soon as we've noticed that, and it might be within seconds, we just gently guide our attention back to this object of focus and we just repeat that and we repeat that focusing on something getting lost in our thoughts guiding our thoughts back to the object of focus and refocusing it again we repeat that thousands and thousands of times and that's that's all essentially meditation is you can make it more complicated lots of different styles of meditation um, but essentially that's all it is at its purest so um, mindfulness and meditation we can confuse the terms but I don't think it, it really matters about what the term is I think it matters whether we're doing it or not so you mentioned brain awareness and I think brain awareness is just another way of bringing people towards mindfulness people who normally wouldn't be interested in it in it so, uh, you know, we, for example, in our own organisation have lots of very smart engineers who may view mindfulness as some fluffy HR thing or some kind of fluffy thing that people do in weird weekend workshops. Um, <laughs> but actually, and this is sort of my observation on this, when people start to learn about their brain, um, it kind of gets them to check in with themselves and I found this myself so a few years ago I was studying about the brain and I learned things say for example I learned about this thing called the default mode network which is this kind of default mode that your brain goes into anytime you're not deliberately focused on a task or one particular thing that you're doing. So if I was to ask you now to pay attention to an email, Chantal, your brain would be focused on that task. If 
I just say to you, I'm just fiddling with the technology here, just give me 30 seconds, chances are your brain goes into this default mode and it typically starts to think about things in the past, things in the future, yourself and yourself and others. It's that kind of combination of those four factors. So I found, for example, when I was learning about this, that it made me start to pay attention to what was happening in my brain. So during the workday, I'd just stop and I think, oh, my brain's doing that thing again, where I'm just, you know, I've, I'm, I'm time traveling. I've gone forwards, I've gone backwards. I'm reliving a conversation. I'm thinking about a conversation that I'm gonna have. And so knowing about the brain makes you recognize patterns of behavior, uh, you know, patterns of, of brain activity, if, if you like. And so I think what it tends to do is to just make you very aware of what's going on. And it can ha actually have similar outcomes to mindfulness. And one of the things that I find is when people start to learn about their brain, they say, well, you're telling me now that my brain is slightly out of control and this amygdala fight flight thing is running the show and I don't actually have very much top down um, ability to control this because you're telling me that my emotions are running the day. And if the answer to that is yes, because most of those things are likely to be happening, um, then people start to say, well, well, what can I do about this? And mindfulness is one practice that has thousands of academic case studies, 4,000 at least academic case studies. They're coming out constantly by the day now. And all of these academic uh, papers are showing that mindfulness has such a powerful, powerful effect, not just on the mind, but on the body, the emotions, pretty much everything that you would like to work on in your life, mindfulness um, has some kind of positive benefit to it. So I don't think it really matters which way people come at it um, through brain awareness, learning about their brain and then being encouraged to check in with themselves, then possibly moving towards mindfulness. Perhaps people have a practice, perhaps they'd like to find out how to get a practice. Um, so you can come at it from any any direction, I think. So how did you first even become interested in mindfulness? How did you realize that this was something you wanted to, to really study and dedicate some time to? Well, I've been studying the brain and mindfulness and, and that kind of field for the last probably about five years. However, prior to that, um, in in a sort of a previous life, life, if you will. You know, I was involved in tough expeditions in kind of very remote parts of the world. I also had a log cabin company. I used to rent out log cabins in wild places of the world. And so it was very obvious to me that there is something that is very, very powerful about just coming back to yourself, you know, putting the distractions away, putting the phones away, the computers away, the TVs away, and just coming back to yourself and, you know, your relationship with your family, your partner, whatever. Um, and that seemed to have quite a transformational impact on a lot of people that I was involved with. And so, you know, fast forward to the last few years, in a way, mindfulness is having the same transformational impact on people. Um, so I was studying the ways that we can think really, really well in meetings and how we can produce mindful meetings. And that kind of led me to start to study the brain. What's happening 
when we're interacting in meetings, what stops thinking, what starts thinking, how can we generate moments of insight? And so that led me to start to study this area. And, um, and I think it's a very, very important area at the moment, and so many people are interested in it. And I haven't yet found one person who is not interested in the workings of their own brain. It's like quite addictive, actually. Once you start to learn about something that happens in your head, you're like, gosh, I really want to know more about this because, you know, it's giving me insight into my own behaviours, my own responses, my reactions. Um, and how I'm showing up in the world as well. So it's really, really insightful information. Um, and, I, and I think it's the, this is why we're seeing that nowadays uh, education systems are starting to teach this to children, starting to teach kids about their responses, emotional intelligence, their amygdala, mindfulness, stopping breathing and thinking, all this kind of stuff, because it's really, really powerful, um, transformational and highly useful information to us. That's really interesting. I didn't know that they were also starting to use this for children, and I think it's brilliant. I think that's very useful. Um, you mentioned some of the ways that mindfulness has affected you. So could you tell us a little more about what are the potential benefits of mindfulness and maybe more specifically some of the ways that you've seen it change the way that you live your life or work? Yeah, um, absolutely. So, you know, if you look in the literature, there's such a massive range of benefits. I mean, you know, things like physical things like pain relief, um, uh, certainly it's it's now recognized in the UK as a treatment for long-standing uh, depression because uh, mm. just you know checking in with yourself questioning your thoughts um, but I think from a workplace perspective I think there's three key areas the first one is focus and attention so that's the that's the thing that most of us are interested in when you know our brains are kind of scattered they're flitting all over the place it's really hard for us to achieve one piece of work without being distracted by emails messages flashing things on our phones it's just the nature of how we live our lives now so being able to stop and say okay what's the most important thing for me to focus on now and am i focusing on whatever it is that's most important to today's mission okay so having that ability to 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 step back it may be at the start of the day and then repeatedly throughout the day just stop make sure i'm working on the right thing and i haven't got sort of dragged into this daily tide of emails where we could just quite happily sit there all day just answering emails so focus and attention is is a really key one a second one is emotional regulation so how do you manage your emotions when the red mist descends when suddenly this emotion kicks in so for example you read an email um, that really annoys you you're in a meeting somebody says something and you think oh for goodness sake you know so when that emotion kicks in um, how do you manage that what can you do and so emotional regulation is is a really really key one there I think the um, third one I'd say is self-awareness as well so what's going on for you at the moment what's going on in your head what are the thoughts are you aware of what those thoughts are are you aware of what um, <laughs> what you're telling yourself 
day in, day out. And for a lot of people, they're not, you know, they're not really listening to those thoughts. And it's those thoughts that can get us into trouble if they're not helpful thoughts and they're repeated week on week, month on month, year on year. So focus and attention, emotional regulation and self-awareness. Um, I'd also say, so in practice, how does it benefit you? Well, I meditate every day before I start work. I do about 20 minutes. I just listen to a digital app. Um, you know, I'm not sitting cross-legged on a cushion chanting or omming. <laughs> I'm just literally listening to a guided meditation, just kind of one of the standard ones you can get out there. Um, and, and it makes the day smoother. And I notice it if I haven't done it because I had an early morning call or whatever, I absolutely notice the difference. Um, the day has a spiky edge to it. That just and halfway through, I think, gosh, what's what's going on with today? And it's because I haven't kind of set myself up. Um, and sometimes I'll use it if I've had a really bad day. I'll just again just do a 10 minute guided meditation if it's a really bad day. Sometimes I use it just to prepare myself if I'm doing a presentation or a webinar or something. Um, but I think one of the key ways in which I've seen a difference is a year ago I moved house and uh, prior to that, eight years ago, I, I moved house. All right. So I, in both instances, I, I sold a house and I bought a house. And in both instances, the the whole situation was as, was as problematic each time. OK, so it wasn't easy. And all of these issues tend to occur sort of two days before you're about to finalise and move in. And um, and I noticed that there was this enormous difference in how I was reacting, in how I was managing the situation. I was so much calmer. I was distanced from the issues. Um, every time a drama happened, I would just kind of stop and think, OK, um, you know, is there anything I can do here? No, I have no control over this. Um, but so is there any point in getting upset about it? No. And it was like a, it was like almost two entirely different people were having these experiences eight years apart. And the, of course, I could have been wiser uh, in the meantime, I could be a bit <laughs> older and a bit wiser. But actually, the reality is now, the only th really thing that was different was that I had a very regular practice. I had a meditation practice, only doing 20 minutes a day. And during that period, if it was a really difficult day, again, I would just do it for five or 10 minutes in the evening as well. And I almost felt like I kind of sailed through the most recent house move. And we know that moving house is one of the most stressful things that you can do in your life, just fraught with danger and stress and you know, all kinds of worry. And, um, and one of the interesting things about mindfulness is it makes you realise that a lot of the things that you are thinking about, worrying about, are never really likely to happen. So uh, you're creating a big story in your head a lot of the time and you embellish it with emotions and feelings and everything, but a lot of it is not actually going to happen. And so having a much stronger self-awareness about what are these thoughts that are happening in my head what are these emotions that are happening to me now and am I hanging on to them kind of holding on to their ankles if you like as they're trying to get away from me and I'm desperately hanging on to frustration or anger or whatever it is is there another way I can be absolutely I, I don't need to hang on to it 
And these thoughts that say, for example, um, it's all going to fall apart, it's going to be a disaster, you're going to lose the house, you're going to be homeless and blah, 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 blah. You know, you get to recognise that it's just a crazy thought. It's just a, a, um, just a, a blip that your brain has chucked out. Somebody said to me the other day that thoughts were just brain secretions, which I really liked. It was just, it's just kind of like a little drip that pops out of your brain and, and you don't need to attach yourself to them. So you can, you hear this word in mindfulness, um, sort of not non-judging yourself. So we, we look at our thoughts in a non-judgmental way. And all that means is we don't hang on to them. If a thought comes in, we sort of think, okay, yeah, there's a, there's a worry thought. Okay. Just let it go. Just watch it disappear. Cause it will go eventually, uh, unless we hang on to it and keep repeating that. So I've certainly found, um, big changes in my life positively as a result of having a regular practice. I also find that comment about the the brain secretions <laughs> um, being very interesting and helpful almost to even just grasping this concept because, you know, if you think about the brain as any other organ, it is. It's just they they have their functions just like you sweat when you're hot your brain has thoughts automatically Ooh. sometimes when when you don't even want want them obviously um so a lo- along those lines a lot of what you were saying you know about your experiences moving and various other experiences you may have had how does resilience fit into the mindfulness equation yeah, so resilience um, is is another big topic at the moment, and and it's a really interesting one because so many of us are saying we are really stressed at the moment, and um, you know, so there, there's a side discussion there as to well, are we really stressed? Um, because you know, are the things that we're facing now any different from the things that we faced for the last ten thousand years? Um, but stress in itself is really kind of an external experience. It's, an, it's something that happens on the outside of us, but it's how we react to it. So, for example, you and me, Chantelle, we can both go to the same conference and speak. We can stand on that stage and speak. And we may have a very different um, view of that situation. So you, for example, and we may both have the exact same physiological responses, you know, for both of us, our heart rate may increase, our breathing may increase, our blood pressure goes up, we start to sweat. You may view that as excitement, a developmental opportunity, this is brilliant, I'm just going to go for it. I may view that as terrifying, fearful, it's the end of my life, you know, this is the end of my career right now. So we can have very different experiences of the same situation so that comes down to our subjective meaning that we have both applied to the same situation now of course we may have very different genetic makeups we may have different experiences in life um uh you know so so there might be some minor differences but sometimes it's just the way that we choose to react and the way that we choose to view a situation so I think where mindfulness helps in terms of resilience is we are less likely to be sort of blundering through life, not really paying attention to it, kind of reacting by accident to situations that are going on. And I think any time we can just stop and really see what's going on 
it can be really really helpful so um, I'll give you an example this was somebody I met um, quite recently who was having some issues at work and I spoke to him about it and he basically offloaded to me for quite some time you know he was and this was an issue and that was an issue and this was going on that was going on, you know and it was a big thing for him there was a whole load of emotion going on behind that very distressing for him and what I noticed was when he was talking to me when I was listening to what he was saying he didn't mention anything that really connected with him. Nobody actually really did anything specifically to him. It was simply his reaction to a whole load of situations that were going on around him. He wasn't the leader, he wasn't the manager, he wasn't responsible for it. He was just part of a, of a big jigsaw of things that were going on. And this, this guy was so distressed because he wasn't able to separate himself from that situation. He saw himself as, as, as central to that situation. So all of the stress was sitting on his shoulders. Um, and I think this is, this is why mindfulness is really a core component of resilience, because it allows you to distance yourself from that situation. Say, well, hang on a minute. Is this, what's this got to do with me? And, and why am I getting so involved in this? Why am I having an emotional response? What is the emotional response? Is it to do with this particular situation? Is it to do with another situation? So mindfulness is, is critical to um, resilience, but of course we it's only one of a number of aspects. So in order to become more resilient in life, we do also need to think about really fundamental things like sleep, which is absolutely critical to good cognitive abilities, you know, the ability to think well, we can't do that unless we've got really good regular sleep, exercise, some great science happening now in the area of exercise and the impact that that has on our brains, uh, especially with the hippocampus. So I'll touch on that briefly because I think it's so important. So the hippocampus is a part of the brain that really kind of looks after long-term memory. Um, so it kind of codes long-term memories and also learning. All right. So it's kind of the seat of learning. It takes in all the experiences and works out which, which of these experiences do I need to keep? Do I need to, you know, pay attention to, file away? Um, and we know that exercise, for example, is really beneficial to regrowing new brain cells or neurons in that area. We know that stress kind of makes those neurons wither away and die like a sort of a sickly plant, if you like. So um, exercise is like miracle grow for the for that part of the brain. And so therefore we could say actually that exercise is as important as these, as these other elements to resilience. So I think it's a holistic view Resilience isn't just one thing. It's not just mindfulness. It's it's diet. It's exercise. It's stepping away. It's having, you know, um, time in nature so we can kind of reconnect with ourselves, reconnect with the world, uh, put the phones down. It's all those kind of things. Um, but at the end of the day, I think resilience is is kind of a a choice. Really, um, we don't have to react to everything that's happening around us in the world. We do have probably more choice than we think we have. All those different areas that you're talking about, the exercise and the diet and just even being aware, um, all of those elements coming together is, is really interesting because there are different areas for me personally where 
I am better at than others in terms of mindfulness. <laughs> um, you know, I've definitely noticed over the past year, I've tried to be much more intentional and and consistent with my exercise. And, um, you know, even when I don't feel like doing it, I've definitely noticed afterward the impact that it has on my mind. So really interesting that all these components, even though it's not, you know, meditating per se, it's still contributing to mindfulness. Yeah. And I think, you know, also from an organizational perspective, um, and it's, many organizations nowadays are, are really interested in resilience because it has a massive impact on, on employee well-being and therefore productivity and efficiency and things like that. But it's not just about having a company gym and it's not just about uh, encouraging people to, you know, have a sensible diet, things like that. It's also really to do with our culture and the way we behave with each other. Um, you know, are, are we kind of behaving with each other in a mindful way? Or are we kind of reacting and responding and, you know, ceasing everyone? And, you know, how are we behaving uh, within our own organisation? So I think that plays a key part as well. Maybe we need to start with the basics first. Maybe we need to start with the diet and the exercise and the sleep first and, and the mindfulness. And then we can kind of work our way up to these much more subtler things, but things that still actually have a, have a very important um, element to them. Speaking of that, things that we can do, what are some of the resources that are available for people to develop mindfulness? I know you talked about some apps that, that you use. Uh, what would you recommend? Yeah, um, I, I'm very much a kind of a digital mindfulness girl. And that's only because I happen to live in an area when there's not many in-person mindfulness classes. So for many people, joining a group, doing an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction program, MBSR-type program, is brilliant. It's an introduction to mindfulness. It's fantastic. Uh, they're in with the group. They're all going through it together. But for some of us, our, our work schedule just doesn't permit that, or we live in an area where that doesn't exist. And I think actually the digital mindfulness world is expanding at such a rate that there are some fantastic products out there. Um, so there's a whole range of products and it depends on, you know, basically what you want and what you want to pay for. So we have lots of premium mindfulness products that are typically costing five to ten dollars a month, something like that. Um, you know, very good, high quality, lots of research behind them. Uh, they're all expanding dramatically. I do recommend them and I and I use those myself. But there's also some great products which are either free um, or just a dollar or two from the app store, which, again, are really nice products. The only thing I'd say is to find some uh, trainers that speak on these digital products, these digital apps, find some trainers that you like the sound of their voice, because otherwise you'll just be listening to their voice and getting really annoyed. So you just kind of have to sort of test them out a bit and think, you know, how would I feel listening to this voice day in, day out? And also, does it vary? Um, so for if you go for a free product, they might only give you like 20 guided meditation sessions. If you go for a premium product, you might have hundreds and hundreds of them to choose from. Um, so I would recommend finding something that is going to keep you interested for the next year or two and really kind of make make it a um, 
part of your day just like brushing your teeth just like flossing it you know those things are time consuming you probably prefer not to do them but you know it's going to do you good and therefore you have to do it and it's exactly the same with a mindfulness practice so it's just about saying um I'm just going to do this every day. I'm going to commit to it. And, and in fact, I don't do it on weekends. I just do it Monday to Friday, just when I need it during the working week. So <laughs> I don't know if that says something about my job. I'm not sure. But um, so, so I say find a way um, of bringing it into your life. So find, find your digital product that you're happy with or you would like to try. And then have a think about how you can make it almost like a treat in your life. So if, for example, you want to set up an exercise program, you wouldn't choose an exercise that you don't like, because that would be counterproductive. You just wouldn't do it. So you choose an exercise that you do enjoy, that you really want to go to do, you know, especially on days when you don't have time, you're not feeling like it. And it's exactly the same with mindfulness. So, you know, is there an app that you can do that and you can build it into your life so it feels like a little bit of a treat. So I'll, I'll give you a little insight into what I do. Um, because I discovered that I wasn't meditating because uh, when I looked at the sort of the gurus who do it, they're telling me to get up at like five in the morning, go to my special room, sit there in the cold, sit cross-legged on a cushion for an hour. And I just couldn't do it. And so I would find that I would just stay in bed and not do meditation then I'd get guilty because I wouldn't do it and I'd know that it was really good and then that would make it even worse for me so what I now do is I on a morning I get up I feed the cats and the nicest possible thing I can do is to go back to bed and so I go back to bed and I sit in bed and I just do my guided meditation sitting in bed and usually the cat joins me and it's so lovely and so easy because my choice at that point is either to go back and sit in bed and do a guided meditation for 20 minutes or to stay up and get myself ready for the day. And of course, the natural thing that we want to do is to, is to go back to bed and, and sit there, even if I'm meditating. So it becomes such a treat and so enjoyable. I, I don't want the alternative. And so that's the other recommendation that I would do is to find a way to fit it into your life so that it actually seems like a pleasure. It's almost like eating dessert. It's so enjoyable. And, and then work out when. When's the best time of day to do it? So is it first thing in the morning? If you have a crazy household with kids, barking dogs, all that kind of stuff, then that might not be the best time. Maybe it's when you've arrived at work and you're sitting in the car just, you know, 10 minutes before you go into the office. Could you just, you know, plug in your headphones at that point, listen to something, set yourself up for the day, um, you know, really prepare yourself for the fire alarms and the emergencies and everything that's going to happen. Just kind of, you know, get yourself into that right state. So I think there's no right or no wrong way to do it. And certainly there's there's lots of options out there um, and there's awful, awful lot of communities out there as well. So if there's some kind of way that you can build in some kind of community spirit to it and connect with other people, maybe you could just connect with people at work and you could all use the same app and you could just connect with each other and support each other. So you don't have to have a in-person trainer if you do you're very lucky and I would say grab that opportunity um, but you can certainly just do it in the privacy of your own home or your car or whenever you go for a run or whatever it is you want to do whatever works for you
I was going to actually ask you to tell that story about about you crawling back into bed to do your meditation because <laughs> because I know there might be a lot of people who feel that way. You know, it's yeah. I you know, I don't I'm I'm not the kind of person to do this in such a formal way. It's just not natural to me and um so I was going to ask that question about, you know, what do you say to people who find it challenging or or get discouraged when meditating? And I think you've answered that beautifully um, with what you with what you last said. Yeah, well, I would add something else because, um, you know, it doesn't need to be that you do a guided meditation app. That's only if you want to do it, because you could say, well, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm going to like, you know, just pick an activity that I do every day and I'm going to turn that into a mindfulness activity. So, for example, you know, I'm sweeping the yard, doing the dishes or something. And and you might just say, every time I do this, I'm going to pay attention to every aspect of it. So that could be an alternative. Uh, if, it, if listening to a guided meditation just doesn't work for you, then just picking some kind of activity and making sure that every single sense is switched on. So you're fully observing what you're seeing, fully hearing what, you, what all of the sounds, smelling, tasting, touch, um, texture, all that kind of stuff. So that's just another version of it um, but at the end of the day it is just about what can you do that you can do for the next two years you know we're not saying for the rest of your life because life changes you change everything ha happens everything changes but what could you do that's likely to continue for the next two years and certainly in the past I have picked up you know these programs and I've tried it and I've failed and it's just been so difficult and I've been so despondent and I've thought why can other people do this and I can't it's just like sticking to an exercise program so I think the absolute key is to work out how could you make it enjoyable so um I didn't come up with this phrase but I did hear somebody call sitting in bed and doing meditation I, I heard them call it beditation which I think is a fantastic <laughs> word so that's actually what I'm recommending I'm recommending beditation that sounds good to me that's my kind of meditation <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so and and also I um I read in one of your other articles that even just thinking intentionally about the question how are you because we all know people will come and say oh how are you and we're all just you know good or maybe sometimes we're like oh I'm all right but you know sometimes really actually thinking about that maybe not necessarily to respond to somebody else although maybe that's worth encouraging also um but just for yourself to say how how am I really right now and and reflecting on that, that is something that's so simple that I think we could all just think about a little more. Yeah, and it's certainly that in itself actually is also a practice. So there's there are some people who just kind of insert purposeful pauses during their day at specific times. Um, so some people set an alarm on their phone or on their watch and all that alarm gets them to do is to just stop, take a couple of breaths and just check in with themselves. That's it. You don't have to do anything else. You just have to say, what's going on for me right now? Um, because I think for many of us, our days are so full of crazy activity and um, craziness in our heads. And I kind of think that sometimes to me, it feels like when you when you arrive at work in the morning, it's almost like you are 
standing on the edge of the ocean and a big wave comes in and it picks you up and it drags you out to sea and you spend all day out at sea being buffeted by wind waves seagulls you know bits of debris um you know fish sharks uh, everything and then at the end of the day you know at the end of your working day the, the sea kind of just dumps you back on the beach and you kind of stand up all bedraggled ready to go home <laughs> and then you repeat the same thing the following day and you and you don't have any way to get out of that it feels like you're at the mercy of, of your day and I, I think if you can have some kind of practice regardless of whether it's a daily guided meditation app that you listen to or maybe you just check in with yourself you know three times a day with an alarm on your phone sometimes that's just enough to give you that distance so that instead of you being dragged out to sea what you're actually doing is you're walking along a pier which is like above the sea and so you're you can see the waves you can see the seagulls you can see the sharks or whatever um, but you're not part of it you're distanced from it you're above it you could still get immersed in it if you wanted to and for sure there will be days when the waves are still coming over the pier at you but in for the whole you are kind of you're apart from it uh, yeah so so i think any of these little techniques can be really helpful and just literally stopping a couple of times in the morning a couple of times in the afternoon taking a few breaths you know noticing what's happening around you what's happening for you what's happening in your body what's happening in your head are you clenching your jaw are your shoulders tight what's going on for you and then going back to it and that's really really helpful from a work perspective as well because many of us don't do that during the day when we get to you know five six o'clock at night we think gosh i didn't achieve anything that was on my to-do list and it's because we didn't really come up for air during the day we didn't stop and think what's my key mission today what did i really want to achieve what's the most important thing i can do for myself and the organization today is it being swept up with the drama, the crisis, the emails, or is it something else instead? And so those little purposeful pauses can be immensely helpful to just give you a sense of perspective and a sense of distance. Yeah, well, and speaking of that, the workplace, how how could we try to integrate this into our organizations? Um, you know, for example, how could we develop more mindful meetings? Yeah, so mindful meetings is is an, an area that's very close to my heart. It's an area of speciality for me. And I and it's such a critical um, area because for the majority of us, we are spending a huge amount of time in meetings. And the science suggests that those meetings have a very strong impact on our well-being, our performance, um, you know, our decision to stay with an organisation. So, so the way that we run our meetings is critical from that well-being perspective, but also, of course, because it's the place where we do our decision making that then leads to the outcomes that our organisation achieves. And so I often think, actually, when I look at organisations who, you know, you see an organisation who, on the face of it, has done something really stupid. And you think, why would you do that? Why would you have made that decision? Who made that decision? And I often wonder about the quality of the meetings in those organisations that allowed them to make that decision. Was it because people couldn't, uh, couldn't be heard, maybe they were fearful, maybe there just wasn't an opportunity to listen to other viewpoints, you know, many, many reasons why those meetings might be dysfunctional. 
So how can we make a meeting mindful? Well, there are certain organisations who will do things like, you know, for the first two minutes of the meeting, they'll have silence to give people a chance to reflect. I think that's wonderful, but it doesn't work for every culture. And, you know, so certainly it's not something that I advocate um, in, in GE's culture, because I know it's very hard for people to do that. They'd be like, that that in itself would probably give people, you know, high blood pressure, because they'd be like, what are we doing here? But I think there are some ways in which we can make a me meeting mindful that are really easy for people to do. Um, so, so I recommend that we ask a simple question, like, what do you think about Project X? And then we simply let people speak uninterrupted in turn, in a round, we just let people have an opportunity to speak. Because one of the problems with meetings is we are spending a lot of our time interrupting each other, we're waiting for people to draw breath, and then we just jump straight in. And what that does, if you're the person who's just been interrupted, is almost like kind of having a mental slap. All right, so it triggers a stress response in your head. And that then limits your ability to think and it certainly limits your ability to come up with some kind of creative solution. So a lot of us are just in this kind of stressed mode in meetings and our brains physically can't think well. So our prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain just behind the forehead that does all the clever thinking, the deciding, the decision making, the planning, um, the emotional regulation, remembering things in the short term, um, putting sentences in putting sentences together and being articulate, all of those clever things it just can't do when it's stressed. And so the behaviours that we're employing when we're in meetings can have that impact. So just stepping back again, how do we do it? Giving people the opportunity to speak uninterrupted is very, very powerful. If we combine it with behaviours like attention, oh, a sense of ease in the meeting, encouragement with our body language, and letting people know that they will not be interrupted when they go to speak. Very, very powerful because it creates this um, sense of psychological safety. It creates this sense of trust. And those are the conditions that our brains need in order for our prefrontal cortex, that clever part of our brain, for it to come back online and to start analysing and thinking. And we also need a very quiet, calm, still mind if we want moments of insight. And it's very rare to have that kind of mind in a crazy, typical interrupting, interrupting meeting. So anytime we can ask a question, say let's hear from everyone uninterrupted in a round, we'll, we'll do two or three of those rounds perhaps, because we'll probably get our best thinking on our second or our third round, and then we'll come back to normal conversation. So just doing something really, really simple like that can be tremendously powerful. Now you can also sandwich that by um, doing what I do at the start of my meetings, which is to ask a really positive opening question. So I usually ask the question, what's putting a smile on your face today? And again, we'll do an opening round that's uninterrupted, so you say whatever you want to say um, and know that you're not going to be interrupted. And it, and it creates a really lovely, warm feeling in your head. I mean, it really is quite nice. So if you sandwich the meeting at the start with positivity and you sandwich it at the end with positivity, what was the best thing about this meeting for you today? Um, it's just a really positive question. And again, you allow people to speak uninterrupted. 
then what you do is you kind of associate that meeting with a particular feeling which is positive you might leave the meeting with a smile on your face the next time you come you know the whole meeting just seems so much more enjoyable certainly in the past I've run meetings this way I've delivered this kind of training to thousands of people and um, and it does seem that even in a fast-paced environment where we just don't have time to think um, meeting in this way actually shortens the meeting um, and, and so I've done some research on this so it shortens the meeting we get better outcomes we get more engagement we get higher creativity because you're allowing people space and time to think because there's not all these side conversations going on so so very very powerful but simple techniques but kind of counterintuitive you wouldn't think that they would have those outcomes um, of course, it does require people to um, to control one of their strongest urges, which is the urge to interrupt. That's such a powerful urge that so many of us, uh, especially in the Western world, we have this belief that we have a right to interrupt and speak because because we know that we're right. So that urge to interrupt is so, so strong for many of us. Um, it just requires a little bit of habit adjustment to step back and say, well, actually, if I allow everybody else to speak, then they will allow me to speak and I won't have to protect my territory kind of mentally and emotionally when I start to speak. Because that's what a lot of us are doing. We're just trying to get to the end of our sentence. So I think those are some really simple techniques. They're, they um, sound rather strange, but once a group has experienced them, they experience a different state in those meetings are much more enjoyable, um, much more effective as well. And, and like I've just said before, shorter as well, which is quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't think those sound strange at all. They make a lot of sense, especially, you know, everything you've said about interrupting. I, aside from, yes, the people wanting to get their ideas across, um, I think a lot of that is because they don't think that they're going to get the time. And whether they whether it ends up being right or wrong people just want to have that chance to speak and so just like you said if it's a safe environment where they know they will get their chance then it makes it easier I think for everybody to just sit back and listen and then and then go on that round and especially knowing too that that it will be able to go back to a conversation if there are elements that people want to go back and forth on um maybe that would make them feel a little bit better about the situation too um, I think all of those things are really, really great ideas to help foster that in groups. Yeah, and, and I would also just add, and I'm not, I don't want to sound negative because the reason why we are interrupting is because we all are quite passionate about our areas and, and we all, you know, want to contribute. But what we don't realise is that contribution is actually stopping good thinking. Because if you think back to the meetings that you've been part of, you know, when was the last time somebody said to you, you know, Chantelle, what do you think? And then they stopped and everyone was quiet and you could sort of go inside and think, now, what do I think? What do I think? And it's that lack of quiet in the meeting space that means often we don't come up with a really, really good um, solution. We just come up with the stuff that's on the surface. And so my concern is that we miss these subtle opportunities, especially if many of us are coming from back to back meetings, we're stressed anyway. Um, when we are stressed, we tend to be very blinkered 
in our thinking. So we're only really seeing the things that are right in front of us. It's just, a, it's a straightforward physiological stress response. So we need to overcome that. We need to calm ourselves down. We need to remove that threat, threat response so that our brains can really kind of come up with these subtle little connections that we will never ever find if everybody's jumping all over each other. So, um, you know, I think it's quite a hard one to to, to do because sometimes culturally it doesn't work, but especially in an organisation where we want to do things. We're so eager to do things that actually not doing is, is kind of feels wrong. Um, but I would say from my own experience, when I've attended meetings that have been run in this way, um, it's been the most amazing meeting because when I've not been able to speak, I've been sitting there and of course I can't do anything. All I'm doing is listening. And I suddenly find that I have idea after idea that's popping into my head and I have to just write them all down because they're just, you know, flying into my head. And it's just because I'm not deciding what I'm about to say next. I have no choice. I just have to zip it. I have to be quiet. And so my degree of... Um, idea creation, creativity is immensely increased compared to what it usually would be. And what's lovely is those introverted people who never speak in the meeting when they're given this opportunity. What do you think, Bob? You know, Bob in the corner, who we've never heard from for the last three years, suddenly goes, well, here's what I think. And will tell you the most amazing thing, because Bob has been quietly thinking, but has never actually had an opportunity to speak in a very safe way, because Bob knew that he would always be shouted down by the more dominant members of the group. So it can be immensely inclusive when we run meetings in this way. Um, but we need to all moderate our own behaviour. So we need to give attention, we need to give fantastic eye contact to the person who's speaking. We can't be texting, SMSing under the under the table. We need to give really good eye contact. We need to encourage them with our body language. We need to give them this attention, silent attention, very, very powerful. Those th two things together have quite a powerful impact on, on, on somebody's brain. Agree, agree. And to take that a step further, you know, I've heard also, and, and sometimes I identify that with this too, that for introverts, it's it's even being asked what they think. Sometimes they need they need more time to think about it. And I think what you have suggested in terms of the quiet time could be extended into maybe we don't need to solve this now or we don't need to get all of our uh, inputs now. Maybe we should come back to this after everybody has had some time to think a little more deeply about it. Because you're right, I think a lot of times, especially in organizations like GE, I'll admit it, um, we want to, you know, like you said, fix the problem we want to do. We want to get to the action right away. So, um, you know, there may be a few different ways that, that this could be tried. I think it's great. Yeah. And, you know, you've really touched on something that's so important there, because I've seen this in the past where I've attended like a three day workout. And on day one, we've got so excited about coming up with a solution and we then run with that solution. But actually, if we had stopped and said, you know what, let's just sleep on this. Let's leave it. Let's kind of um, just let it percolate in our brains and not really think about it. Our, our subconscious will come up with something. You know, you ask yourself a question, leave it for a few days, and your subconscious will, will pop up an idea in your head. So sometimes I think the most beneficial thing we can do is to not do, 
you know, to not decide, to, to not meet, to come back a week later with it. And so there is, um, I think we need to just be very cautious about doing why, what, when, by whom, how will we know, who's going to do the metrics by doing all of this at the same time. Because also from a brain perspective, we know that the questions like what, how and why might actually be um, answered by different parts of the brain and so if you're constantly going backwards and forwards yeah but we can't do that one because and then this one won't work let's what else you know it can be quite exhausting for the brain which is why it's it's can be quite hard work these workouts <laughs> that's why they call workouts right yeah, yeah. Um, so I actually think there's a much easier way which would be to ask the question in advance so say Chantal I wanted you to come up with an idea for something if I ask you the question now and I say to you, can you think about this question? How do we fix project X and we'll meet next week? But I want you to just have it in your mind now. Your subconscious can start to think about that now. And you might not even be aware of it because you just, you know, your your non-conscious part of your brain is is so enormous, so active it's like an enormous computer. It could be working on that problem over the next week. Maybe we just do one element of it. We do what is the problem and then we come back a little, a little while later. So I think sometimes we do ourselves a disservice, even though our motivation is right. We want to fix things. We want to move on. We want to solve it, go on to the next problem. You're a problem solving organisation. Sometimes we do ourselves a disservice by not taking the time to think um so yeah it's very very valuable and an un underrated activity for sure a lot of food for thought but it's been really interesting debbie thank you for being on the podcast today and what i want to share with our listeners also is you do have some speaking engagements coming up can you maybe just share what engagements you might have that others may be able to attend yeah, so this year is a bit quieter than last year so far. Um, so this year there's going to be a virtual summit, which is being produced by the American Institute of Stress or the American Stress Institute. Um, they're launching that in April of this year. And every day for 30 days, there's going to be a different speaker talking about stress and resilience. So we, we might be quite interested in that. Um, they've got some very eminent professors who really are the top of their field in this area. So I think that's going to be really fascinating. So we're going to see if we can get access to that. Um, I think access is free if you listen to the session that day. And then if you want to sort of, you can buy the recordings, so you've got access to all of them. Um, there'll also be some sessions in London, Mind and Matters conference, possibly speaking there. Um, and then we'll see what other what other invites come in during the rest of the year. Sure, absolutely. And is there is do you do you have a website or any social accounts that people can follow you? Um, I don't have a website at the moment, but I'm certainly on LinkedIn, just under Debbie Jeremiah. So you could just search for Debbie Jeremiah GE, and that would come up. And very happy to connect with anyone who wants to talk about brains, mindfulness, uh, mindfulness in the workplace. Perfect. And for, for employees who are a part of GE, we do have the Mindful Leaders program and some courses uh, through Brilliant You. Yes, that's right. And probably in about March time, we're going to have a Mindful Leadership collection on Brilliant You as well. So it's going to be super easy and there'll be loads of uh, resources available that are completely free. So we'll be guiding people towards um, audio books, books, articles, classes, everything. So it's going to be really easy for people to find resources that they can access really easily and for nothing as well. 
Awesome. Awesome. Amazing resources uh, for everybody. So check it out. If you're obviously not a part of the GE organization, definitely, you know, explore some of the tips that Debbie has shared, some some apps maybe to check out um, and share with us what your experience is and how how it has impacted you. Great conversation. I enjoyed it thoroughly. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and of course, like, comment, rate, and share. Thanks for listening.